All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 17. As we continue to look at the life of David through 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's a verse by verse, chapter by chapter study. We are in 2nd Samuel chapter 17, putting it at verse 24. It's our desire to get into chapter 18, verse 18 today. The topic in this text, retreating from David's men, Absalom gets stuck in a tree and Joab kills him while he's hanging there. Our title, Just Hang Loser. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. I feel pumped, Lord, from the worship. Just excited, Lord, that uh, to be reminded that you have set us free to worship you, brought us into a relationship with you, to know you in a personal way, in an intimate way. As we've said the last couple of weeks, Lord, here in our study, you no longer call us servants, but you call us friends. You share your heart with us. And Lord, this morning, I, we believe that this word in Second Samuel was given for us. Uh, we know that all Scripture is by inspiration, Lord, and it's profitable, and it's profitable right now, today. And so we want to understand the history, know the story, Lord, and get it right, but we also want to see what this has to do with uh, my life, our lives, Lord, as we are seeking to share you with others in uh, the world in which we find ourselves. And so, Lord, bless our time together in your word. May your spirit be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. As we approach this text, I can almost hear ring announcer Michael Buffer saying, let's get ready to rumble. Don't you like that? I mean, I was going to try and do it the way he does it, but only he can do it. Let's get ready to rumble because King David and his forces and his followers had crossed the Jordan River. It bought them a little time to get battle readied. David's traitorous son, Absalom, had mustered Israel's remaining troops and was making his way to engage his father in a winner-take-all showdown for the kingdom. Their conflict provides us an opportunity to think about our own spiritual battles as we follow our king the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your king deserves that you be battle readied. And number two, your king decrees that you be battle tested. Let's take a look, first of all, at being battle readied, uh, beginning in chapter 17, of course. Now, every now and then, it's good to stop and remind ourselves of what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and 11. With regard to the history of the people in the Old Testament, he said, and I quote, these things became our examples. All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. While these Old Testament stories are true and historical, they are also given to us today as examples. We would say they are types or illustrations of our own spiritual lives and they are to admonish us in our walk with the Lord. Now looking at these opening verses from the perspective of a type, we see that the forces and followers of the king readied for battle. Thus we are being encouraged through their example to ready and be readied for our daily spiritual battle. So verse 24, chapter 17. David went to Mahanim and Absalom crossed over the Jordan And he and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. This Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, 
who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Uh, just kind of some biographical notes, getting us ready for the players and letting us know that the battle is about to begin. Of note in this description of Absalom's men is the statement that Amasa was the son of a man who had gone into Abigail. And that's code for he was an illegitimate child. It reminds us that this entire battle was, in a sense, illegitimate. Absalom was not the rightful king. His followers were deceived. Just so the devil is not the rightful king, but nevertheless he is called the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. He's waging a war against the followers of Jesus, taking non-believers captive to do his will and oppose us. Verse 27, now it happened when David had come to Mahanim, that Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, they brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curd, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Mahanam was a fortified city, so it made sense to go there. The word means double camp. The site was first named by the patriarch Jacob. Right before he named it, he was met by the angels of God, prompting him to say, this is God's camp, using the word Mahanam. You could describe a gathering of believers on the earth as Mahanam, God's camp, a double camp, consisting of God's people, but also the presence of God. The inference is that to be battle-readied, we must gather at Mahanam, gather with others, and experience the presence of our King. I'm fond of reminding you over the years that though the Holy Spirit indwells us, uh, and though uh, God is omnipresent, Jesus nevertheless said that he would be present in a very special way when two or three believers gathered together. And he reveals himself in the book of the Revelation as walking in the midst of the church uh, as it meets. Uh, and, and so we are the Mahanam, the double camp. Be a great name for a church. Where do you go to church? I go to Mahanam, the double camp. What does that mean? It means that I'm there and God's there and together we're a majority. Now, the various people listed in these verses are those David had shown kindness and mercy towards. They have an opportunity to respond to David's kindness and mercy by giving him of their provision so that his troops will be strengthened and ready for the fight. And as I was reading it just now, I, I realized that they're not even asked to do this. They uh, understood that, uh, the, you know, they saw the need and they met the need. Uh, they knew David had fled. They knew his people had fled and David had gone so far and he had rested and then he received word that Absalom was coming right after him. So then they had to muster themselves and go across the Jordan and come into Mahanam quickly and and all without even the proper rest. And so these various people whom David had shown kindness to, they they on their own said, we've got to help and support and strengthen the army of David. Has God shown you kindness and mercy? Yes, incredibly so if you are saved and on your way to heaven. You're to respond by giving to God from out of your resources to strengthen his troops. Giving, and by that I mean financially, it's one of the key disciplines of the Christian life. 
Yet giving is not really practiced by most believers, and it's down across the board around the world even more than usual in recent years. Look at it this way, if you want a comparison. We get all riled up when our military men and women are not provided with the very best equipment for carrying out their tasks, and rightfully so. And not just the military, but what anyone in emergency services, firemen, policemen, we want these people who are putting their lives at risk, who are on the front lines, to have the very best equipment. And when we find out that some senator or congressman or councilman is withholding uh, you know, some of that money for some other pet project, we get mad. We want that to go where it is needed. How much more we should have a greater sense of wanting to supply the work of the Lord so that our spiritual soldiers, those that are on the front lines, the missionaries, the ministers and others are equipped in a sense with all that they need to accomplish their ministry. Moving into chapter 18, verse 1, and David numbered the people who were with him. He set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one third of the people under the hand of Joab one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruai, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. Now David alone had the authority to assign his troops and set them in their proper organization. I, you know, he may have gotten together with Joab and the boys and uh, figured out you know, the strategy. We don't know exactly what happened historically, but here the text only records that David decided to set this strategy in place. And we see in this what we sometimes call the headship of Jesus Christ over his church. He is the head and we are his body. It's one of the pictures or metaphors or illustrations of what it means to be a member of the church or in the church on the earth. Uh, You want to know how it works? It's as if it's one body. Jesus is the head giving instructions to all the various members. That's us. He's the head. We're the body. He gifts us and he organizes us as he sees fit. When we are submitted one to another, when we recognize his authority in the delegated authority he has placed over us, we're able to get great things done in his stead. It's as if Jesus said, I want to multiply my body. My, I'm going to heaven, but I want to multiply myself, my body, all over the world. You know, Jesus as the God-man, he could only be in one place at one time because he was in a physical body. He remains in a physical body today. And, and so he says, but look, I'm going to go, but I'm going to multiply myself. And everywhere there's going to be a body of believers and various bodies accomplishing various things. And I'm the head of them and they will all be moving in the ways that I want them to. Now, it's true. We are all equals, but it does not follow that there's no organization or that a Christian need not be connected to a local body. Those whose contact with a church is light or who set themselves up to be independent of authority, they're ignoring the headship of Jesus Christ. There are lessons to be learned, growth to be had in submitting to the Lord's delegated authority. Look at it this way. Again, since we're talking battle here, suppose our military men and women had the attitude that they didn't really need to submit to authority, but they could develop their own groups and fight whoever and whenever they wanted. So you've got the military and then the commander in chief comes and he says, here's what we're going to do. And, and he musters the troops. I say, well, where is everybody? Yeah, they decided not to come. They're, they're uh, 
they're doing something else over here. What? Yeah, they, you know, this guy who's a, you know, uh, first class, he just set himself up as a chief. And, and now they're running a whole different department of the Navy on their own over here. They, they don't answer to your authority. They want to be supplied by you. They're going to come and get some supplies when they need them, but they've got their own thing coming up. There's a word for that. I think it's insubordination. It might be treason even. You know. And so, I mean, we look at the military and we think, you know, this is a fine, well-oiled machine. If you're, if you're going to go in with shock and awe, you need to know what you're doing. And everybody has their part to play and they know what it is. And we talk about the church being a, a, a battle force, soldiers and sailors and, you know, and all that. And we think, ah, you know, I'll go when I want. I'll do what I want. I'll be what I want. I don't need to really be submitted to any authority because, after all, we're all equal anyway. I can go to whatever church I want. I can do whatever I want. And, and you know, it's an exaggeration, but more and more that's how Christians are in, in a lot of situations. They're just independent. They're just doing their own thing. Uh, and Paul would describe them in 1 Corinthians as a hand that's been cut off from the arm. They're like thing in the Adams family, you know. That's what you see a Christian who's not going to a church on a regular basis and has their own thing going on. That's what they are. They're just a little hand. It's cute for a while, but they're not really doing anything for the Lord. David said, I also will surely go out with you myself. We're reminded here of the Lord Jesus promising that he would what? Never leave us or forsake us. We're reminded that the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us. Now, when pursuing types and illustrations in the Old Testament text, it's important to realize that since these are genuine histories, not every detail is going to match up perfectly. David is a type of Jesus Christ, but obviously not every detail of David's life can be seen as representative of the Lord. And so what you're doing in these Old Testament types is thinking in terms of New Testament principles and then seeing how certain aspects of what you're reading flesh that out. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we want to be careful to not misrepresent the Lord when the followers of David demand he remain at Mahanam uh, and he submitted to them. And so we, we don't really see this as a type of Christ where we tell the Lord what to do. And he says, oh, okay, I'll, I'll hang back. Although there are some types in here. Let's read that, verse 3. But the people answered, you shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood behind, uh, beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Uh, trying to find some types in here, and there are some good ones. David's people say of him, you are worth 10,000 of us. Do we not sing of Jesus Christ that he is what? The fairest of 10,000. And indeed he is. Obviously, we should never say to Jesus, hang back. We've got this. We don't need your help. Uh, sometimes, sadly, we do act as though we don't need his help. We make our own plans. Uh, we pursue them. And then we ask the Lord to come along with us. David would be physically absent from the battle, waiting for his people in the city. Jesus is physically absent, having ascended into heaven. And he's building our homes in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. 
And we would say that Jesus is more help to us in the city. He told his disciples, I alluded to it already this morning, that it was good that he go away because then he would send another helper. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit who would be in us and come upon us for our walk and our work on the earth as we await his return from heaven to take us home. And so the night before he was crucified, Jesus said, I'm going away, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing in terms of the plan and the purposes of God because I'll be gone preparing your place, getting ready the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which is going to come down out of heaven when he returns in his second coming. But in the meantime, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer. And each of us is in a sense like Jesus. Jesus was the God-man fully indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to, when I go, then God the Father will give this promise, this gift of the Spirit, and there will be multiplied millions and millions and millions of Christians. And, and you know, the, all that famous stuff about how Jesus affected the world while not really leaving, you know, within the 30-mile radius of where he was born, and see the great effect that he had. And then he says, now, I'm going to fill and, and call uh, and send out multiplied millions of people all over the world, what an effect that's going to have. And it has. I mean, we may think that the church is failing or that things are falling apart. But, you know, billions of people have come to know Christ since that first century outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And though God's work is often carried out quietly and in weakness it is carried out and christianity is always one generation from extinction do you realize that all it takes is for christians to quit sharing their faith governments try to stomp it out they try to kill all the christians it can't be stopped because it is the power of god unto salvation and so jesus is more help to us in the city and so these verses this first section They paint a picture of Christians and of the church of which we are a part on earth being battle-readied in various ways. This morning I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit because He's talking to you. He's applying these things in your particular situation. Be encouraged by them. Be exhorted by them. Now as we move into chapter, uh, the rest of chapter 18, beginning in verse 5, your king decrees that you be battle-tested. David commanded his troops to deal mercifully with Absalom. Verse 5. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. Sure, he's David's son, but his rebellion and the destruction he caused, including, as we'll see in a minute, the death of 20,000 Israelites in this battle alone, well, they would defy any call for mercy. I mean, Absalom had crossed a pretty big line, you know. I mean, we're all merciful towards our children, and um, we don't like to discipline our kids. You know, we... You know, they're doing something terrible. We think, is that really terrible? I wonder if they really need a spanking for that or whatever. And so, I mean, Absalom was so far beyond that in what he had done in rebelling against his father and being responsible for this battle and the death of many thousands of individuals that even as a father, it defies the logic of calling for mercy. 
Now, we've seen before, and we're going to see again in a minute, that Absalom can be seen as a type of Satan. How much more shocked are we when, as young Christians, we realize that the Lord has defeated Satan at the cross, but he still allows him to go on roaming about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour? I mean, seriously, the first time you read the opening chapters of Job, aren't you mind blown that Satan still has access to the throne of God? That God gives him permission to go after Job? That's a, that's a mind blower. It really is. You're a young Christian reading it. My first thought is, huh, I wonder when this was, because golly gee whiz, I'm sure Satan can't just go to heaven. You know, I mean, he's a rebel. And then you realize that he's, he's called to heaven. And he has conversations with the Father. And then you get into the, the, the substance of the conversation and, he's, and you almost want to say, oh no, what? Then you read the book of Job. And then hopefully by you get to the end, you realize God wants to test our faith. We need to be battle tested. Job, at the end, he says... Basically, he says, I was thrown into the fire, and what? I came forth as pure gold. I had heard of him with the hearing of the ear, but now I know him. There was a transformation that took place in Job that could only take place as the Lord allowed Satan to test him. In the case of the devil, God isn't showing him mercy. God uses him. We must be battle-tested as to our faith and faithfulness. Alan Redpath used to say that a faith not worth testing is a faith not worth having. And so verse 6, So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. It was a mistake, strategically, for Absalom to allow David to set the location of the battle. They fought in the thick woods, what they call here the countryside, rather than on open ground. David was a master of guerrilla tactics, and his men were used to stealth. It had been some time since he had been on the run from King Saul, but David had learned a great deal about how to fight a superior force uh, from a guerrilla standpoint. You can think of yourself and other believers as a sort of guerrilla force here on the earth. God has inserted you somewhere in order to soldier for him by sharing his love and grace and mercy with others. Uh, You know, we're not... It's not so stealthy. I mean, you're, you're there announcing that you're the Christian, but it's kind of a guerrilla situation. You've been inserted in a place where chances are most people are non-believers. Uh, a lot of them are wicked. Some taken captive by the devil to do his will. And, and, and yet there you are, the lone Christian, as it were. But uh, a master of tactics as you show God's grace and love and mercy. I'm also intrigued by the phrase, the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Either Absalom's troops were extremely clumsy, or there was a supernatural element at work. Uh, It's it's very interesting. Verse 9, Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule... I think I told you a few weeks ago that the mules, they're, they're fast. 
These are, these are super, you know, uh, soldier mules that are bred for battle. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth and the mule which was under him went on. It's an old school version of that scene in The Return of the Jedi when Luke Skywalker, remember he's being chased through the woods of Endor on his little speeder and all the stormtroopers are chasing him and he's all the branches in the trees and stuff and every now and then one of the stormtroopers hits a tree and explodes. I mean, so, uh, you know, so here David's troops are coming and they're used to this kind of warfare and they're, you know, chasing the Israelites and they're going and they're, you know, they look back, bam, the tree branch hits them, you know, and so they fall into a pit because it says the, the uh, woods killed more than the soldiers. And so they're dying as they're going. I think there is a supernatural element as well. How many movies and, you know, different plays and stuff where the, the forest comes alive, you know, and kills people. But uh, so anyway, Absalom, he's going on, on his super mule and, I, and he gets stuck. Uh, clobbered by this tree. Now, Absalom, it says his head got caught. We always say it was his thick and beautiful hair that got hung up. Remember, we read in a previous chapter that he cut his hair once a year is a big event, the Absalom haircutting on YouTube, and that the clippings weighed about six pounds. Uh, and so every year they'd have a, they probably have a contest. You know, how much hair is Absalom's hair going to weigh? And so he's this really vain guy with long, beautiful hair. And um, he's fleeing on his mule and he gets stuck. The text, however, says it was his head. It's the Jewish historian Josephus in his account that says it was his hair. And that has stuck and, and it seems to make sense. Notice the interesting way Absalom's predicament is described, however. It says he was hanging between heaven and earth. I alluded earlier to one of the titles of Satan that he is called the prince of the power of the air. He's sort of hanging around in the air between heaven and earth. Although Satan has access to heaven when summoned there, he was cast out along with a third of the other angels that followed him in his rebellion. They have access to the earth, but they're not confined to the earth until after the church is raptured sometime during, uh, after the church is raptured, and then they'll be confined to earth sometime during the great tribulation. Uh, Satan, you can see him not as fallen, but as falling. I always like this. He was in heaven with God. He's cast out of heaven. Now he's the prince of the power of the air. He has access to heaven, access to earth. At some point, he'll be thrown down to the earth. And he'll, he'll be confined to the earth, especially for the last three and a half years of the great tribulation. Then when Jesus returns, he's taken and he's bound and he's cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He's let out of that, leads another rebellion on the earth, and then he's cast finally down into the lake of fire where he spends eternity. And so Satan is a falling being, you might say. And right now he's hanging, as it were, between heaven and earth. Uh, and so we see this in the way that Absalom is portrayed. Verse 10, now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, 
Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king. And you yourself would have set yourself against me. This is an interesting exchange. It's worth a study all by itself. What can we make of it? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that we really can't be sure who was right. I think I know what side most of us are on here. But on the one hand, you know, we think that Joab was right because Absalom was a rebel and this was a rebellion and he needed to be dealt with. On the other hand, we could think that this certain man was right because he was obeying the direct order of his king, even though in most, you know, in some sense it wasn't the best order, it wasn't an evil order, it wasn't a sinful order, and he wanted to obey his king. The unnamed soldier did no harm. He didn't free Absalom or let him escape. It's therefore hard to fault him. Joab had a greater authority than the soldier to make field decisions, it's hard to fault him as well. Maybe the lesson for us is that two soldiers can look at the same situation, or we would say ministry, differently, depending upon their roles and maybe their maturity. As long as the Lord's work gets done in a way that honors and glorifies Him, that would be the key. To me, the really sad part of the exchange between the soldier and Joab is that Joab is immediately and unnecessarily critical. While for his part, the soldier describes Joab as someone who won't support his troops when push comes to shove. And so, the situation exists. There's the devil. There's Absalom, as it were, hanging between heaven and earth. And they take two different approaches to it. Can't fault either one. Joab, just immediately critical puts down his soldier. Why didn't you kill him? What's the matter with you? And the soldier says, well, yeah, I could have done that, but I know that you wouldn't stand behind me when I did it. When they said, who killed this guy? Joe, you'd turn the other way and whistle Dixie or whatever. you know." And so they don't really uh, trust one another. They, they had awful camaraderie even though they fought side by side. Part of being battle-tested is not just getting the job done. It is getting it done with love towards one another. How we minister can be as important as the ministry itself. In fact, I've come to learn over the years that a lot of what happens is designed by the Lord to test our relationships rather than to accomplish the results we're trying to achieve. And so in the church, this happens all the time. There's ministry that could be done or needs to be done or there's a situation that exists. And quite honestly, there are different approaches to it. And as long as a person is not sinning, then who's to say that their approach is the wrong approach? And yet so often Christians want to criticize one another. Oh, this is what Pastor Gene should have done. Well, this is what the elder should have done. Uh, and, in, you know, I think God sets up situations sometimes to test us, not to see how the situation ultimately be, will be resolved, but what our heart really is towards one another. 
There's a lot going on in life that we overlook. Uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, we just need to be careful about these things. It's sad that Joab, you know, can't overlook his soldiers. I mean, his soldier, I, quite honestly, you're kind of happy that you have a soldier like that who obeys orders, aren't you normally? King said not to kill him, so I, I had a hard time killing him, but I'm telling you, and I have to think, here's a, this is a whole other uh, angle to it, but pretty much everybody knew that if Joab found him first, he was going to die. And so this guy doesn't go to Ittai, uh, you know, uh, or Abishai, he goes to Joab. And so if you're Joab, you should think, hey, thanks a lot, I appreciate it. You could have went to my other two captains. I don't know what those guys are going to do. But instead, he's critical. And, and then the soldier says, hey, I, I don't believe that you would stand by me. I don't have any confidence. And what a sad thing that you're, you're fighting shoulder to shoulder with somebody, sword to sword, shield to shield. But in your heart, you think, I don't really trust this guy. And so that's a, a, a really important lesson for us to learn. Now, verse 14, then Joab said, I can't linger with you. because I don't have time for this. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. Actually, I like the King James Version better. It says, uh, instead of spears, it says he took darts. Whatever size these were isn't the point. The word darts reminds me of the fact that Satan is described as attacking with fiery darts in Ephesians 6.16. And so again, small clue that we are seeing Absalom as a type uh, of spiritual warfare. Although he's loose on the earth and dangerous, in another sense, the devil is in no position to harm you if you appropriate the victory of Jesus over him at the cross. He's just hanging around, defeated, waiting for things to run their course. Verse 15, And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel for Joab held back the people. Joab was the proverbial bad dude. It took ten young men to carry his armor. He was someone you did not mess around with on the field of battle. He had skills and he had the disposition to match them. Trumpets were used to direct troop movements and make important announcements. Apparently there was a trumpet code for the battle is over because I've just killed Absalom. And so David's troops acting as one it says they returned. Now, it may sound obvious, but when it comes to serving the Lord, we need to be clear about communicating what we're doing. We need to communicate with one another, know our objectives, and work together to achieve them. Verse 17, they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, <coughs> everyone to his tent. Why this impromptu burial? Two things come to mind. First, it reflected what was due Absalom under the law of Moses. A rebellious child was to be taken out of the camp and stoned to death. Now, Absalom was already dead, hacked to death, but his burial under a large heap of stones would represent the stoning that he deserved. Second, it eliminated the possibility of David making a big event out of Absalom's burial. As we will see, David almost snatches defeat from the jaws of victory by his over-mourning the death of Absalom. And so even though he doesn't have his body and doesn't, you know, do this burial thing, he still mourns over him. And uh, we'll see that Joab has to come and rebuke David and say, you know, 
It seems like you would have been happier if we had died and Absalom had lived. That's really no way to encourage your people. Uh, That's for another time. On a typological level, Absalom's burial in the pit reminds me that after his rebellion comes to its head during the Great Tribulation, as we've already said, Satan will be bound and cast into a pit for a thousand years before being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. You know, what's nice about this, or interesting, not nice, but interesting about this is that as you're reading it on the surface, you think, man, David has no chance here. I mean, Absalom has gone and he'd rallied thousands and tens of thousands of troops. David had a very small fighting force. Uh, you know, he's, he's holed up in the woods and uh, it, it looks like he's got no chance at all and that the rebellion is proceeding. And then you see, bam, 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 supernaturally here and there, and the, you know, that he's defeated. And, and it's, it, you know, we look at that and we think, okay, all of this typology, Absalom is a type of the devil and all of that, our absent king supplying us and all, it, it's an encouragement that uh, when things get tough in our battles, the outcome is certain. We know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, and and uh, even though I know you've been in positions, maybe you're in one right now, that seem overwhelming to you, that there, there's really no way out of what you're going through. And God is bigger than that. Verse 18, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He's called, uh, excuse me, he called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. Absalom was what we today call a legend in his own mind. Having no living sons to carry on after him, he thought to commemorate himself by erecting a marble monument. What's your legacy? While the world encourages us to build monuments of stone, as it were, we are capable in the Lord of building a spiritual house. We can instill in our children a knowledge of and a love for the Lord. We can serve the Lord with our time and our talent and our things, storing up for ourselves an inheritance in heaven and obtaining for ourselves spiritual offspring as those things are used by the Lord to reach unreached people. It's important to be battle-readied, but you also need to be battle-tested. The situations you find yourself in every day, they're the arena of your spiritual battles. It's at home, it's at work, it's in school, it's out in the world at large that your readiness is then put to the test. Every encounter is one in which you can respond with love, with grace and mercy, and thus turn the fiery darts of the devil against him. Let's pray.